Hello, and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Luis Aguirre-Torres to the show. Dr. Torres is president and CEO at Green Momentum, Inc., a market intelligence and innovation company focused on the Latin American cleantech industry. He is also president of Cleantech Challenge Mexico, Latin America's top green business accelerator program. Luis, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Raj. Thanks so much for having me. Luis, thank you so much for joining us. Luis, I like to kick things off with something interesting about my guests. So if you could share something interesting about you that you'd be open to sharing during our interview. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I like doing is, is reading. You know, when I, um, I'm, I'm originally from Mexico. So when I moved to England to do my uh, for grad studies, I... Um, I took on reading some uh, literature, you know, and I became quite obsessed with, uh, you know, Irish authors and in general uh, literature from, from that part of the world. And, uh, you know, my obsession continues to this day. I, I keep on reading, you know, like stuff like Oscar Wilde sometimes. And it's definitely really funny because, you know, I really like it. And I have read uh, that kind of book, uh, like those kind of kinds of books many times. And, and every time I try to talk to people about it, they they go like Oscar Wilde, really. But you know, I'm I'm a fan. <laughs> so that that's interesting. Um, how does that translate? And what I mean by that is that you know I've been told many times. So I'm of Indian origin. I speak Hindi. I read limited Hindi. But people always tell me if you want to know the you know the real culture of a you know the real meaning of a culture, then read the literature. But then there's also nuances in languages. How does that translate between, let's say, the original writings of Oscar Wilde and, you know, in your mind, you know, you having a Mexican uh, heritage? Well, that is a very interesting question because I, I do get out that a lot. You know, people always find it funny that I am uh, more interested in that kind of literature than literature from Mexico or Latin America in general. Um, it doesn't quite translate in any way other than, you know, becoming more uh, knowledgeable of uh, other cultures because, to be honest, I mean, if you read uh, literature from the past 200 years uh, in England, it tells you a lot about society today. And at mm -hmm. the, in England, and I was trying to understand, you know, uh, you know, social rules in general and, and a way of engaging people uh, native from England. But then I discovered that through these, you can fully understand Europe in general. And then if, if you come from, from a place like Mexico, for example, then you start understanding some of the differences that exist between the two. And then when I eventually moved to the U.S., I was also able to map those differences. So I think in general, when you read uh, something that is very, very specific to one region, uh, you can obtain value in two ways. One of them is understanding better that culture, but then understand better your culture by contrasting. Again, very interesting, and not that we're going to get off on a uh, geopolitical offshoot here, but I'm actually from London. I was born in London, spent my first 17, 18 years there. And so some of the things that are happening today, whether it's in London or you know across Europe or even here in America, some of the political shifts, it's almost like I can feel, you know, inherently what's happening just because I'm from that region. <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I hear you. I think, I mean, when I moved there, uh, what happens, I think a lot of people, you know, a bunch of uh, people that travel uh, a lot or, or expats living in, in different places, normally, like, you you get to understand and then you identify yourself with that community and then eventually you become, like, uh, you know, part of that community. You become almost a citizen, if you're not officially one. And uh, 
same thing happened to me. You know, I, I, I look at Europe and everything that's happening there. And, and, and I, I am sad a lot of the time, you know, the divisions that currently exist in, in, in Europe, particularly in England, it's, uh, I find it sometimes really sad, you know. The elections yesterday, uh, I mean, people voted and eventually, you know, we're going to have a, a Brexit. And that was something that I would have voted for if I were living in England. But, you know, that's what's happening today. And it's, it's amazing how the world has changed so much in the past year. Again, my wife and I had this conversation this morning regarding geopolitical. We kind of took off on, you know, Thomas Friedman, The World is Flat. That was written 20 years ago. Yes, to a certain extent, technology has flattened many components of it. But I feel like to some extent, um, the walls, the borders, the personal, you know, the, the feelings are going up again. And we're snapping back to that point that we were prior to that. Uh, no, it's, uh, I know what you mean, uh, Right now, it's so difficult to understand, uh, uh, not so much what's going on, because we can clearly see what's going on and we can even understand the roots of, of you know, the, the current divisions that exist and the, the different views that people have of, of the world they live in. Uh, but what I find it very, find very difficult is, is to understand where things are going. You know? At the end of the day, the repercussions of what we're doing today, what we're voting for today, the people in government today, all of those things is so hard to understand where the world is going, you know. I'm, I'm keen to find out, but at the same time, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, I'm very keen to find out too. And, you know, that's a great launching spot for our, our next uh, part of our conversation. You know, if you could share a little bit about your current endeavors that you're working on, because I know you're working on many and, you know, what those mean to you, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, well, um, I think I need to give you a little bit of context. No, uh, I mean, I am a technology person. I've been always interested in technology. I've been always interested in business. So, I mean, I did do a PhD thinking at the time that I would be, you know, an academic, that I would eventually work at a university and, you know, continue developing ideas and technology, but mostly from a scientific point of view. Uh, and then precisely moving to England helped me, you know, view the world in a different way, in a different light. And then I understood that I could do many more things, you know, and my, you know, uh, the idea that I would be an academic start fading a little bit and then I became an <laughs> and, uh, and as an entrepreneur is, uh, you know, it, it's fascinating, you know, uh, it, it's always very difficult. You know, very few people are lucky enough to, you know, hit the jackpot in the first place. Uh, I mean, for me, it was it, it was hard. It was difficult. There were so many lessons in terms of how you can get along with people, especially when you are debating the way technology can go or the way technology can develop. Uh, but in, in all that process, I kind of got lost, to be honest. I became so focused on technology and then the money that you could make with technology that I lost track of other things that are now con I consider even more valuable. And, and one of those is the world we live in and the world we share with people. And if you care about people, in my case, my children, my wife, uh, thinking about them and thinking about, you know, how we are producing technology for the sake of producing technology and not really to solve a need that we could have. You know, I became worried. I became much more acutely aware of, of the repercussions of, of my actions as an entrepreneur. And then I decided to start uh, a company that would entirely focus on on affecting permanent change in the fight against climate change. So I created a company called Green Momentum. And, you know, a, a very basic way of describing what we do is we try to figure out every single day a way of using technology to make sure that climate change does not destroy this planet in the next 50, 100 years, right? Um, 
order to do that, you need to work with the people developing the technology, the people financing the technology, the people legislating so you can use the technology in a particular way. And then you need to look at it not only from a very specific region point of view, you need to look at it from a global point of view. So I would say that I mostly focus on international public policy that helps people understand the way they can use and take advantage of technology in order to benefit society, the environment, and the economy. And it is, it is quite personal, and, and I strongly believe in what we do, but I believe that, you know, uh, there's so much work to be done every single day. So Green Momentum, if I understand correctly, is your most recent endeavor. You know, we talked briefly offline a few days ago. You've been in this space for quite a while, I, I think 20 years or so, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So 20 years ago, what gave you that feeling or what did you see happening that made you decide to commit to, let's say, improving the environment or getting involved in this movement? I'm going to be 100% honest with you here. Uh, it was a conversation with my wife. You know? It was a conversation about what is it that we're doing? You know, people could, I mean, I've been told that uh, it is the closest to a midlife crisis. But to be honest, it was just, you know, so many times we get asked questions that are incredibly deep and relevant and important, and we don't take them seriously. You know, if somebody told you, how could you, like, from where you are, what you do, how could you transform the world? I mean, a lot of the time we wouldn't take the question seriously because to do that, we would, not, we would need to reflect on so many things. But at some point, I did have a conversation with my wife when she was asking me that question. She was like, okay, you know tons of things, you know, in terms of uh, how to develop technology, how to finance technology. You have dealt with governments. How can you use to actually affect change in the most positive way? And she asked me that question, and, and she wouldn't let me go easily. You know, like at the end of the day, I needed to answer that question. Of course, you know, when you are... You know, the excitement with the second, third, fourth beer, you know, it makes you even more honest when you're answering that question. So uh, when we were talking about that, I, I I started thinking, you know, like, actually, I could do that. Actually, I could make sure that whatever I do has a positive effect in the world. And it was from that conversation that a, a number of changes in my life started. And one of them was focusing on what was important at the time focusing on what could be important in the future and then developing a business model and an idea that could eventually take on that. And it's been a challenge that we've been taking on every single day. It's been probably the best role of my life, to be honest. Well, they say behind every great man is a greater woman, correct? Yeah, well, actually, she's ahead of me, behind me, in front of me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> she's really the one driving this. In the 20 years, how have you seen the landscape change? And I know I'm going to ask you both vantage points because I know you were involved with the government organizations here in the U.S. and in Mexico. So if you can give us both vantage points, I'd really appreciate it. Sure. Um, I mean, it, it is very different. And it, it is different because in terms of uh, culture, you know, Mexico and the U.S. are very, very different. You know, we're neighbors. We, you know, there are a number of Mexicans living in the U.S., a number of American visiting in Mexico for business. We are, you know, the main business partners from both countries, but at the same time, you know, we, we need to worry about different things. So when when I was in the U.S. Uh, working on these, I mean, it, it started in California, which is probably, you know, it's one of the places where people are extremely conscious about this. It made it into the political agenda many, many years ago, much earlier than in, in most countries. So people started worrying about, you know, the effect of the current economic model uh, could have in, in the environment and, and in, in people and economy. And 
in, in, in those discussions, you know, there was a lot of uh, urgency. And we're talking about a long time ago, right? But there were there was some urgency. People were thinking that we didn't have a, a lot of time. They were worried about that. And then they made it their top priority to develop a solution. And the solution was going to come you know, a combination from industry and government, you know, so so the development of, of legislation that will uh, prevent uh, some companies from polluting uh, uh, the same level as, as they were uh, at the time. Uh, you know, like people were, were thinking about it, they were looking at it as, as a problem that we all needed to solve at the same time. And it was very interesting because I was working at the time with very, very smart people, people that were really uh, interested in finding a solution, uh, interested in negotiating, interested in, in listening to every point of view. That uh, made it relatively easy, you know, to start changing things. It, it didn't mean that it was going to be easy all the way. It just meant that the beginning was easy. And we started working on some more specific stuff, like trying to regulate some specific industries. And, you know, when you try to regulate industries that have been in a particular way uh, for so many years, like the energy industry, then it becomes more difficult. Then the auto industry, it becomes more difficult. There are so many economic interests and political interests also uh, in, in those industries that it was very, very difficult to make progress. So in the U.S., we could say that, you know, we made so much progress at the beginning of the 2000s, you know, like the first 10 years of this century. We actually made a lot of progress in terms of legislation and people were looking at things in the same way. And that sense of urgency, I think, still remains, but the is faded a little bit. So we are not really all in agreement in terms of what the next step should be. So that's what's uh, stopped progress in, in, in the past 10 years. In the case of Mexico, then it is perhaps even more interesting because, you know, Mexico has had different kinds of problems, you know. Uh, for many years, we've been trying to solve some cultural, social, economic issues that relate to the history of this country, that relate to some idiosyncratic issues that we have. Uh, there is uh, inequality in Mexico. Uh, uh, I think the, the economy has evolved uh, in, in, in the past years, but not to the point where we could say that we are uh, a high-income country in terms of competitiveness, uh, competitiveness uh, in the global scale. We're always, you know, in the middle, uh, really. So Mexico has had to worry about, you know, creating strong institutions, uh, eliminating corruption, uh, eliminating hunger, uh, making sure that everybody has access to education, etc. So there are so many uh, areas of interest for governments uh, to focus on. However, uh, when we start talking about the environment, you know, it was not the same as in the U.S. It wasn't that, you know, we found agreement immediately. Actually, when we were talking to government at the beginning of the century, we were talking to them and they were not interested in, in, in the subject. They really were more focused on other areas. Eventually, you know, because of uh, international pressure, because, you know, our neighbors up north were working on, on climate change legislation, were working on renewable energy, then the country became interested. And I think it was the economic effect that uh, the changes that were uh, taking place in the border, uh, you know, in Texas, in California, that eventually affected uh, policy in Mexico. Then, you know, the federal government got uh, interested, seriously interested in, in climate change, and then new legislation came, but that legislation was entirely based on what happened in California before. And then we started working in renewable energy, we started modernizing the industry, but then, you know, 2018 happened. And in 2018, 
Mexico realized that we were leaving behind half of the population. We were entirely focusing on, on economic aspects, but not social aspects. And the problem with that was that we needed to, you know, take a step back and all the progress that we had made, we kind of stopped and we stopped focusing uh, as much anyway in, in terms of uh, energy transition and in implementing climate change legislation. So even though that we are still trying to do that, we went back to focusing on what was important, is important for the current government, which is making sure there is no inequality, making sure there is no hunger, making sure that people have access to education. So we did not make that much progress. We did make some progress, but it's not really enough. So the two countries are right now stalling, I would say, but for very different reasons. So it's interesting, um, you know, when you mentioned Mexico, I, I kind of feel like you're kind of working your way up that uh, Maslow's hierarchy, right? You're trying to ensure that the basic needs are taken care of before you can move to the next stage. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's normal, you know, if, if you define you know, the economy, but what, by what the focus is uh, at the beginning, you know, uh, I, I mean, you have, according to the World Economic Forum, for example, you can talk about this uh, factor economy, you know, where you are trying to develop the proper infrastructure, the proper government model to make sure that the country functions. And, and, and then you start uh, becoming more efficient, which is the second group, you know, efficiency economies. And, and Mexico is one of those, right? I mean, we're not an economy that is, you know, starting, uh, you know, we have institutions, we have laws, we have uh, a way of making it work, we could say. But we are not an innovation economy, which is the third group. You know, the third group that we, normally you, you can find the high income countries. So Mexico has been trying to make it into that elite group for many, many years, right? But the problem is that, you know, the country is big. Uh, there are so many differences in terms of uh, the way we perceive the economy, the way we perceive relations between uh, different types of people. And so, yeah, Mexico has been trying for many years. We are not quite there. I don't think we're going to be there for some time still. You know, you mentioned renewable energy earlier. What are... What are the current interests in Mexico? Which which areas of renewable energy are, are there interests in? Well, I would say solar is uh, perhaps the most interesting. But in, in, in reality, uh, you know, in 2014 was when we actually had the, the, the beginning of the energy reform. And the government was very clear. And there was this vision where we're going to have, uh, you know, by 2050, we're going to have 50% renewables, 50% mostly natural gas uh, in, in terms of electricity generation. So in terms of uh, renewable energy, the, the country was thinking that perhaps out of that 50%, half of that was going to come from wind and the other half was going to come from geothermal, hydro and, and solar. Uh, right now, I mean, things have evolved a little bit. Now the focus is not so much on renewables. Uh, the focus is a little bit on, on still on hydrocarbons where we're still working with and to save the, the national oil company Pemex uh, here in Mexico. However, there's still, you know, some movement in, in the renewable energy arena. And in there, a lot of the focus has been on decentralization, mostly on distributed generation. And in, in that sense, it's, it's mostly solar. So uh, for the past three, four years, we saw huge investments for large-scale uh, solar farms in Mexico and some wind. Before that, it was mostly wind, uh, um, not offshore, onshore wind. But today, I, I would say that investment has been reduced dramatically. So there is not going to be large deployments of solar technology, but there's going to be a very large number 
uh, of distributed solar. We're talking about probably maximum one meg deployments uh, for the most part. Of course, you know, large projects are going to continue and corporate uh, farms, uh, solar farms are going to continue. However, like the focus has shifted from large scale deployments to, you know, distributed solar for the most part. Now, switching gears a little bit, I know you work with or you run an incubator in Mexico for clean tech. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So are there any clean tech companies, energies, technologies that you're seeing, you know, uh, coming to the top that you're interested in? Yeah, no, uh, I mean, things have evolved. I mean, we've been doing this for more than 10 years, uh, particularly the incubator. And we've been looking at how things have uh, become more sophisticated. You know, from the very beginning, we're looking at, at very low levels of economic and technological sophistication in, in all the clean tech companies that we were finding. And it was very interesting. And this I have to mention, you know, like 10 years ago, we were, you know, doing a survey trying to understand how we could tackle the problem. And we realized that people didn't know what clean technology was. People, when you talk to them about clean technology, they were talking about laundry machines, dryers, and and it was amazing. And it was funny at the time. It is still funny, but it was also tragic, man. I mean, it really was like, how is it that people don't know that solar exists, right? I mean, many people knew, but in general, we could statistically that those were nothing compared to the amount of people that didn't know that clean technology was a thing. So. Things have evolved, and I think uh, we have worked very closely with the government, with many other organizations, and I believe that now there is a clean tech industry. We just recently determined that it, it is about 0.05% uh, of the GDP comes from clean technology companies, which, you know, considering Mexico is not a bad number, it could be much better, obviously. Uh, but looking at small medium enterprises developing technology and trying to participate in the clean tech industry, we see, you know, a change. Right now, we're talking about companies wanting to be part of the energy industry. Uh, and in there, you're talking about some, you know, a lot of the time are just, you know, PC companies. Uh, but we also see some companies working on, on the engineering around. Uh, so we're talking about blockchain, we're talking about IoT, we're talking about machine learning, artificial intelligence. We see those companies uh, in the energy sector. We, we also see companies trying to, for example, tokenize energy, right? And, and those are the things that are mostly uh, of interest to me, although we also see companies that are focusing on, on waste to energy, waste management. Uh, we, we've had a couple of companies developing interesting uh, energy storage technology. Uh, we were talking offline about how these uh, company developing flywheels uh, were the winners three years ago of, of Clean Tech Challenge Mexico. Uh, you know, every year we give an award to, to the top company in the incubators. So this company had everything from a business point of view, from a technology point of view. They were trying to raise capital to scale what they were doing. And uh, I believe that, you know, they are still in the process of, of fixing some issues with the technology, but I believe that they're going to be great. So we have that. Uh, we had a couple of uh, companies developing, designing from the ground up uh, electric vehicles, uh, one of them uh, using composite materials, uh, recycled composite materials, uh, for a new, brand new electric uh, vehicle company. So, you know, we've seen some very, very interesting things here. So the company that's doing the EVs, do they have a prototype? They do have a prototype. Uh, it's not a commercial prototype. They're actually playing with that. Uh, they do not develop the uh, the powertrain for, for the electric vehicle. So right now they're in the process of acquiring some of the technology 
for the EV. Mostly is the engineering around the storage, the, well, the, the battery system uh, and the, the chassis, and they are partnering with other companies for, for the uh, So it's nice. We've seen others that are, you know, uh, low-end uh, electric vehicles, more like a golf type of car, which they are suggesting to use for tourists in downtown Mexico, for example. But, you know, mass scale, like, you know, wanting to be like a Tesla type of creature in the long run, uh, we've seen just this one company, but, you know, they are the very, very early process. Uh, you know, I, I personally think there's a lot of opportunity for small EVs partnering with solar, especially in rural areas, there's a lot of opportunity there from a transportation standpoint. Yeah, I believe in Mexico too, you know. Uh, it, in, in some aspects, uh, I mean, we have, the world has turned to, for example, Africa, Southeast Asia, and, and trying to solve some of the problems. And I think there was this shift uh, you know, at the beginning again of this decade, that where people were not trying to convince, uh, you know, Southeast Asian, African, Latin American countries of adopting the technology as it is used in developed countries. Uh, they've been looking at, you know, how can we help with the problems that they have and at the same time help them introduce these new technologies. So we saw how uh, electric motorcycles are being used in Africa to deliver medicines to remote communities. So here in Mexico, we have a bunch of entrepreneurs that are actually looking at the same issues, you know. For example, this Mexico, which is the poorest area of the country, and all, which is also encumbered by, by, by the problems with geography, you know, like they live up high in the mountains and stuff like that. So it's very difficult to get there and deliver, you know, goods in general. So people are trying to find solutions for both transportation, but also, you know, some other social issues uh, uh, that can be solved. So it's interesting because it's not the, the usual approach to trying to, you know, open a brand new market by producing a super expensive electric vehicle that would create an elite market. A lot of the entrepreneurs are focusing on the opposite. Are focusing on how can we tackle all these social issues at the same time that we introduce technology? So we have seen, for example, there is an hybrid uh, uh, energy generation system that uses both wind and solar photovoltaic technology, specifically for uh, rural communities in in Mexico. Uh, they are trying to help uh, you know people that work in the fields trying to, you know, get a solar wind power irrigation system and stuff. And so, you know, there is a lot of opportunity, not only in electromobility, but also in, in energy generation. And they get a lot of help from, you know, development agencies, multilateral organizations, when they're focusing also on social issues. You know, Luis, from our last conversation and this conversation, one thing I sense from you is, a, is like a great deal of optimism. And one of the things I like to explore with my guests is, the why behind, you know, what they do. And so why I do what I do, you mean, you know, what's drive, what's driving you? What's your why? Yeah, it is. Uh, I think in general, I am very passionate about technology, but I also have seen firsthand what inequality does to people, to, to people uh, as a country, you know, uh, the divisions that it can create, the injustices that it can create. And, and then, you become really passionate when you realize that, you know, you can be a catalyst for change. I mean, at some point you realize that you can be part of, of that necessary change that needs to happen. So uh, you start working towards that and it's very difficult because it's very difficult to, to you know, create results that will allow you to get funding, for example. But 
but slowly you, you start making progress. And, you know, after so many years of doing this, we are understanding now how to do it. We're seeing results. We are seeing communities being transformed by the use of technology. So now, uh, I mean, it, you, you get inspired by your actual work, by the result, by, by how people are reacting to this, by how a government is accepting what you're proposing. So, you know, it's difficult times everywhere, economically, fine, uh, socially, politically. Uh, Mexico is not the exception. However, you know, this is something that social, uh, sorry, uh, civil society is gonna is, is gonna push. Private sector is gonna push. The government is gonna listen. So now I am happy and optimistic because you know I see progress and I see progress every single day. So you know it's it's also hard in this industry if you are not optimistic. If you are here just for the money, it's gonna be hard. If you are here because technology is cool, it's gonna be hard. But if you are here because the way we use technology can change lives, then you are onto something. I kind of feel like your why started with that conversation with your wife 20 years ago. And some of the results that you've seen in the 20 years is what's kept your optimism going. Would that be correct? That is correct. I think uh, for the past uh, several years, everything that we have done has been with a purpose uh, and, and with the idea of making sure that any change we produce is permanent change. And we have seen the results. We have seen communities transform, and I am still true to my, you know, to that promise that I made to my wife to make sure that whatever it is that I do now, it's going to count for something. Well, Luis, I admire both your promise to your wife and your optimism. A question I like to ask my guest is, you know, if they could share some advice with the audience, it could be regarding renewable, sustainable, or anything personal. What would that advice be? Well, I think in general, it's paying attention to what really matters. Right. Uh, I think we get distracted by, you know, everything that is shiny and, and that includes technology, that includes short term results, that includes policies that benefit greatly, but just a very small group of people. And I think if we care enough, we pay enough attention, then we focus on the right things, then then we're able to be part of something that a lot of the time is going to turn out to be much greater than ourselves. So. If I were to, you know, provide any advice, I, I would say pay attention, seriously pay attention, make sure you are focusing on things that really matter and then everything is going to come. Luis, I, I really appreciate that advice and I agree. Pay attention to what matters. It can dramatically change your lives. And I really appreciate your time for this conversation. Are there any last words you'd like to share? No, I mean, only to thank you for for you know, having me, uh, for having this conversation. I think I enjoyed very much being uh, in, in this podcast and also you know, always talking to people like you that are also trying to give a voice to people uh, working in this uh, current environment. And I think that is something that we should be thankful for. So thank you. Thank you, Luis. I appreciate you. <laughs>